0: My guest today is Damien Egan, and Damien is the Head of Sales for for the Scandinavian region. Damien, you're very welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much for having me, Paul.
1: Happy to be here. Damien, could you tell me a little bit about where you grew up? I'm, I'm afraid you're going to tell me it was
0: Tipperary.
1: I don't know if that's true.
0: No, it's worse. Uh, I'm from Offaly. Uh, oh. I I, uh, I grew up um, outside Tullamore, about four miles outside Tullamore, in the middle of uh, in the middle of the countryside in the sticks. Um, yeah, grew up there, rural upbringing. Went to a rural primary school, um, then ended up actually going to boarding school. Uh, went to Grey uh, Sturgeon College. Um, spent six years there, six great years, I would say, um, which I actually think was probably where a lot of who i am now is kind of formed um and yeah obviously going to a school like that and growing up in that uh, environment uh, and having two older brothers being the youngest of of three um very competitive household uh, through sports academia even uh, as we got older but uh, mainly mainly sporting uh, and basically anything that we could fight about we did oh, th- and that's why i drew the assumption when yeah. i saw Ross uh- and, yeah. well, that's okay,
1: you you recover that nicely, you're from off me, that's fine. As <laughs> a, a Kenney man, we're hard and hard to hate anybody from Tipperary, so <laughs> automatically. Yeah. Uh, well, what was that? I'm curious about the boarding room, uh, the boarding school experience. I've known a few people who've gone to boarding school and the one thing you can always say, good or bad, is that it always leaves its impact some way. Mm. Uh, and what's your, for you, because you said you think it has it had an impact in shaping who you are today. In what way?
0: Yeah, it's, uh, it's something I get asked an awful lot because particularly where I am now, um, in Oslo, which I'm sure we'll get to, is uh, it's not very common for people to have gone to boarding school. So it's uh, it's it's something I'm used to answering. But I, I really think it's, um, for me anyway, uh, and obviously everyone has their own experience of it, but for me it was very formative in terms of it was the first time i was really responsible for myself like i was I, it, obviously we had structures and we it was quite strict in terms of like what you could do and it was very regimentous your day um but there was no one really to kind really turn to like you didn't have your parents to lean on there all the time like i didn't have uh my older brother was there for a year while i was there but after that it was very much so i was on my own for the most part um and i loved it I, I thrived in it i really really enjoyed it and i think that's where a lot of people who maybe don't enjoy boarding school or who went and left after a couple of years they they don't adapt to that that quickly especially at the age of like 12 13. Mm-hmm. um so it was yeah that was a big one for me I, le- I just learned to grow up quite quickly um and i think i've probably matured me Faster than a lot of people I would have known from home, if I hadn't
1: known you went to boarding school and I met you now and we we're having a conversation or it was through a work environment, is there anything in how you behave that w- might tell me oh, he went to boarding school?
0: I hope not <laughs> <laughs> to be honest <laughs> uh, I, I no I don't think so anything specifically okay. it's um but you mentioned the regimented bit and the
1: structure. I'm very often, yeah, one of the positives is people are very organised and
0: disciplined. Yeah, there, there's probably that. Like there, there's part of that, but I think there's some some things that a partially boarding school was one of them, and it kind of maybe hammered home some some things that I I, I was naturally built into me anyway. Uh, and it was mainly around competitiveness. It was like, and that started with sport. Like mm-hmm. I played rugby, golf, hurling. Football, uh, every sport. I played basketball in, in Ross Gray for a bit as well. Did a lot of athletics. Uh, everything I could turn my hand to, I did, and, and I did quite like reasonably to a high level across multiple of them. So uh, that was from a young age, though. Um, and then going to somewhere like Ross Gray, it really, really drove home that those things you could excel at, you you really, really could push um, in in an environment like a boarding school um, because. People who were good at these kind of things uh, and who really enjoyed them got, were given a lot of opportunity to try, you know, thrive and grow at that. Like there was rugby training every day uh, or five five days a week. There was hurling training the other days. Uh, there was sports in the afternoon. All all the rest of it. So it was um, it was something that I suppose helped me from that perspective. But. Uh, it also, uh, in the te- in your teenage years, when it's not as easy to wake up in the morning as it is when you get older and you start getting into the, 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 the being used to waking up early to go to work, uh, the the bells going off at 7.30 every morning and having to get out of bed and go to get breakfast and having housemasters and 50 other kids in a, in a room with you all waking up at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, I suppose the main thing would have been like, the social element, you had to learn to know how different characters and different personalities work, um, because if you didn't, you were with them seven days a week. And if you did not get on in testosterone filled all boys boarding school, mm-hmm. uh, you know, sparks fly. So uh, it, was, it was one of those things you had to learn how different personalities worked because um, not everybody was the same. And it was something you were really thrown into a kind of melting pot from a very early age to, to figure that out.
1: Yeah, I would imagine that. I would imagine that if you weren't good at getting on with other people, that in an environment like that, you'd, you'd be sorted out pretty
0: quickly. There's a bit of that. There was a few guys, I remember, who ended up on the wrong side of that one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, so mm-hmm. you'd be correct in that. It's not a bad thing in itself. Obviously, it can be taken too far. But in yes. it's sort of knowing that
1: that's there does... Provide people with kind of instant feedback as to what kind of behaviour socially amongst your peers is acceptable and and what isn't. Um, I didn't go to boarding school, but I did go to a CBS school, Mm. quite similar. You know, it was an all boys school as well. Um, Mm. You learn to navigate the parameters of social interaction very very quickly because you you straight outside it, you might have got a fat lip. I'm not condoning that. I'm just saying it was a
0: fact of life. Yeah, it was the realities of it, though. No, yeah. you can't take, you can't ignore it either. No, yeah. was there anybody back
1: then, in terms of uh,
0: teachers, etc.,
1: who would have inspired you, uh, you would have really looked up to and taken kind of life lessons from?
0: God, in school there was uh, at that that age there's a there's a couple of people that stand out to me from between teaching and coaching um i suppose there was a one that stands out to me immediately i had a well one first and foremost my dad was my rugby coach when i was young and he's been very very influential in my whole life across yeah. all sports across advice uh what not to do what to do um you know and and he's been really influential for me in in that respect and obviously i'm youngest of three brothers so both of them, particularly as I got older, both my brothers have been more influential as I've gotten older and the kind of people I can really confide in and speak to. Mm-hmm. Um, but from a young age, outside of like my family, there was a, a, a hurling coach, uh, Seamus McKeown, he's still to this day, one of the, I would say best coaches that I had in terms of forcing you to kind of be accountable for what you do while you're not at training. You know, like, so how do you eat when you go home? How do you, do you practice, like, do you you pick up a hurl every day and practice when we don't have training that evening? You know, holding you accountable to the standards that he wanted you to kind of set for yourself, like, that was a a really, really good one for me. Um, And then in Ross Gray and in school, there were a couple of teachers that were just fantastic people, and I would actually say they were probably the teachers that... I'll remember the most and remember the best because they were kind of the ones that once you got to the kind of 17, 18 age, like that kind of fifth, sixth year, they're the ones that started treating you a little bit more like adults and less talking to you like student like talking to you like children. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were the ones that I really remember and that I really like have a lot of respect for. Um, and I think very fondly of like, so, yeah, there was, there was two or three of them that were like that. Um, I had a business teacher, Flora O'Brien, my German teacher, Neva Rourke, economics teacher, Brian Lynch, There, Jerry Grealish, She was a chemistry teacher, wasn't, I didn't do chemistry, but really, really good person to talk to and uh, even just have a chat with um, and the principal at the time Marceline Cody was always a very motherly figure to everybody who was there uh, kind of cracked the whip so uh, yeah there were some of the people that really kind of stand out to me
1: Mm. there's not a lot of hurling or rugby happening where you are right now in in
0: Oslo (laughs) not quite no
1: (laughs) how how did you end up there?
0: yeah um, I suppose, a a, stand, a, a a well-told story in terms of, I'm sure I'm not the first, I um, I was living and working in Dublin for 11 or 12 years, and then working in HubSpot uh, at the time, and they hired this girl called Amelia, who is now my fiance, and Amelia is Norwegian, and yeah, I took the, the Viking road trip back over to Norway from Ireland, so yeah, that's pretty much the story. That's it. You're always going uh, home. Always going yeah. home. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. second yeah. I met her, I knew I was like, okay, this is only going one direction. I know. <laughs> um, if, yeah. we, if, if this is serious, I'm going to end up in Norway.
1: Yeah. And so how long are you in, in Oslo for? So since how long, I
0: should say? I'm uh, I'm in Oslo just over a year, about a year and a half now. Okay. Um, yeah. So, what's the difference of you or what,
1: what do you see are the differences culturally? To
0: being culturally um a couple of key ones they Norwegians are obviously aside from like the price of beer, I think that's famously known uh, it's it's not easy it's expensive night if you go for a few pints uh but norwegians i would say um as a culture are probably i wouldn't say less social but like less um inviting to people who they don't know they're very kind of in their groups they stick to what they know and and they're they're once you're in the group you're you're there for life Ooh. but I, in Ireland you know like you could go on a night out and you could speak to a hundred people um, you know you, you know like, like that's we're very social culture and social people um, Norwegians I suppose are more of that kind of northern Europe Germanic straight-laced type thing uh, the other thing that's um, a huge, huge difference is it is now 10 to four um, and there's nobody in the office except me. I can see uh, one of my other colleagues, Christina, is packing up now and leaving. Um, whereas in Ireland, you know, that is, that just wouldn't happen. <laughs> the day is only- the- And they come in <laughs>
1: earlier and just go earlier.
0: They, they do come in earlier. Most people would come in and would st- they'd be started. Uh, most people would start work around eight. A lot of people might start around seven. Um, So they could finish up earlier and take a shorter lunch. Um, But it is like a 37 and a half hour work week. And Norwegians stick to that. They do not typically go above that time. Um, And and just like the whole family cabin experience, what they called Hitta here. Um, Going up the mountain, being in nature. That is really, really important to their society. And personally, I, I think they've kind of got it right. Um, like they they work to live, they don't live to work, um, which is a really really nice nice thing.
1: Yeah. No, I have to say I, I I love the culture there. I mean, I've been there many times with before. Sander, even when I was working in mobile, aware the Nordics was my region, and uh, yeah, in fact, pivotal moment for me was was working with Telenor Mobile as an account at the time. Mm-hmm. I learned from it, but. That aside, and I've been there a few times on photography courses up to the uh, up to the Northern Lights. And, uh, do they say, I, I always called it Lu, uh, Luffington, but then I've heard it called the Foden. But I know, up there, in, in, in the north, yeah, up
0: there, yeah, yeah, yeah. So beautiful, beautiful,
1: spot. And uh, I yeah, I was there,
0: there last summer.
1: Love the culture. Um, talk to me a little bit about your own journey into sales. How that happened, because. You studied what,
0: what was it you studied in college again? I'm sorry, I'm confusing you I with something else now in my head. But I I studied economics in UCD, um, and then I went and did a, a kind of an advanced diploma in marketing um, as a secondary. So that I basically did that as a night course while working. So when when I when I left college, um, I finished college at that unfortunate time uh, when ireland had gone into a massive recession and uh, i was doing an economics degree and there mm. wasn't many banks or anything like that hiring which is kind of probably the route i was going to go down mm. um i've i've an uncle who's uh, in, in investment banking over in new york and it was always someone i kind of looked at and was like mm-hmm. yeah that's that's the life i want um but then I suppose having done the economics degree in UCD, it, the, the main thing it told me was I do not want to work in finance. Um, so then I, I fin- got the, finished this degree, I got out, and essentially I just started working um, in retail. I started working in a, uh, I was working in a, in a clothes shop called Hackett London. That's right. In, uh, in uh, yeah. I was working as a ta- ta- in tailoring, mm. and I was. I was a a breath away from going down like a tailoring route in Savile Row and going over to train, Um, but uh, it just, I was kind of doing it more because I didn't know what else to do. Um, I was kind of, I was a little bit lost as a lot of people of my generation probably were around that time. Um, So I was working there and uh, doing personally tailoring suits and like meeting people, doing measurements, planning it away, doing all that kind of stuff. And um, I was very fortunate that uh, my brother, who was getting married around that time, um, had a friend called Shona Tully, um, who was a sales manager in HubSpot. Um, And at the wedding, I met Shona and just got chatting to her. And she asked me, what did I do? And I think her whole frame of reference was mainly that, you know, if I can do what my brother John can do. I might be a good hire for her. <laughs> um, so I think that was kind of probably her thinking about it. And then about still so scouting
1: even at a wedding. She was, oh, she um,
0: is, she's relentless. She's if, I, if I'm talking about people who have influenced me, she's probably the from a professional setting. She's the probably the one that's influenced me the most. Like she is regimental, uh, so determined, really, really smart. Like re- really, really. Clever about how she does things and an and incredible work ethic um, and expected the same of her team. Um, so it was very much so like, if you're on my team, this is how you work and nothing less will be acceptable. Um, so it really kind of it, it, it built in. A, it, it, the work ethic, I think, is really, really important from a sales perspective, because it is a numbers game. Like what you put in, you will get out at the end. And that really, really was a formative kind of year or two i spent working on for her directly mm. um but yeah at the wedding that's where it started and then she basically reached out to me after that uh, and said look i might have a positioning opening up uh, for a bdr for my team and um yeah about six months later the, the 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 guy who was supposed to get promoted out of the position missed his promotion stayed as bdr so there was a delay and then uh, yeah i got a call from a recruiter um that was it. started in HubSpot in January 2017, I think. Mm-hmm. And
1: how was that different for you versus, say, in a retail sales operation where people are coming in off the street? It's a very, I would imagine it's a very different type of sale. I'm just wondering how you took to it and how you experienced it.
0: Yeah, it was. Um, it's an it's an interesting question. It was like it was two different worlds, like to be truthfully honest, like it's a, uh, it's one thing selling high, high price suits. Like some of the suits I, like I typical suit would have been, you know, a thousand euro to 5,000 euro. Realistically, mm. Uh depends how, if you wanted a custom made or not. Um, but, when I went into one of the things, I think they were very concerned with me about going into the software world. And I, I actually think if I was applying for HubSpot now, I wouldn't get I wouldn't get the job. I wouldn't even get past the recruiter, um, based on like they they're too big. They're looking for more experience. the the, the product's gotten too big. You, you know all the reasons. Um, but at the time, they were kind of early days. They really only had one product at the time. Um, so it was. The biggest concern, I think, from the recruitment point of view was could I manage the pace um, of sales that was expected in HubSpot? And I think for the first few months, um, first two or three months, I was kind of going through the motions a little bit. I I wasn't aware. I wasn't so aware myself as to like I was on a timer in terms of that six month probation to like I needed to be at 100 percent. It didn't really dawn on me until I was aware of it, but more kind of like I didn't really figure out that this is really important in terms of sales in a software company. So the first few months I it took probably I was slower to take it up. But then after that, um, it, it became just, you know, very natural to me. Like it was a really steep learning curve um, in terms of knowing the product, understanding how a B2B sales process in a software company works, like understanding like you know, you you know this better than anyone. Understanding not only the questions to ask, because I was told like you know more or less these are the questions you should ask. You need to qualify for X Y Z in order to book a meeting. But I had no idea really why those questions were important. Mm. Like it was very out of context for me. It took me a while to really figure out, you know, my own strategy within that within that kind of framework I was given. But once I got that, that was. Yeah, it all just came together.
1: Yeah. And um, I'm curious to know, in all of that, what you felt made you then ultimately successful in that kind of role.
0: Yeah. um, Going back, I've thought about this myself a few times. Like, why did I do well? Um, Because not everybody did. A lot of people failed. Um, A lot of people who you know, kind of got stuck in going through the motions and, 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 you know, it can happen to anybody. Like you get kind of monotonous. You start forgetting things that you're supposed to do. Like you forget the basics. It's always the thing you forget if you don't practice them. Um, I think one of the things for me was I am definitely motivated by a fear of failure. Um, that, that when I was in HubSpot, particularly, I, that was my main thing in those early days. I could not, accept myself to not be seen um but my idea of failure was not being number one um that that was my kind of mentality at the time and i I, I still probably is so like not being the best or not being in like the top when you see the waterfall not being in the top five was failure to me because i was like that that was my mindset is
1: that a fear of failure or is
0: it a desire to is it a competitive thing
1: makes you want to it's
0: it's definitely a competitive thing, but I think it's an important distinction between like wanting to be the top and more not wanting to be not considered in the, in that top bracket. Yeah. Um, it, it's a subtle difference, but I think that was more my motivator. But then once I got there and it became consistent, then it was I want to be the top. Like I don't want anyone to be in front of me, and that particularly when I got out of BDR and became a rep that was my number one thing. And I used to have two or three other people that were in my segment or that I was competing against and I was like, I knew their numbers as well as I knew my own numbers because I was like, you're my main competitors and I need to be ahead of you. Um, But yeah, that was was definitely it. It it transitioned over time, but that uncertainty was definitely more a fear of failure. Um, And then once I got good at it, I was like, yeah, I I want to be the best.
1: And could that... Could that desire to win come from the fact that Offaly haven't won anything since nineteen?
0: <laughs> well we won the we won the, the under twenties um, on the football, so we're hanging on to that. <laughs> I'm only bitter because I was
1: there and you beat on the day, so I'm still bitter. <laughs> <laughs> I'm only kidding. Yeah.
0: Maybe, maybe. It could could be something to do with it. Um, but I would say that the fear of failure, to be truthfully honest, probably came more from um like my home home life and being so competitive with my brothers, like, cause we, uh, and even my dad being the coach and everything I did, I never wanted to be seen not to be doing the right thing. Um, mm-hmm. in terms of like letting them down or giving them a reason to critique me on something or, you know, and that was more in my own head. That was never anything they put on me, but like both, both my brothers were yeah. very successful in their own right in rugby. So I always held myself to that standard of yeah. like, They played for Leinster. That means I have to play for Leinster. They they played for Ireland. I have to play for Ireland. Um, Interesting. But they they, they didn't play hurling or football, so they have no county medals or anything like that. I I have all of those.
1: (laughs) When you won or felt like you'd succeeded, who would be the first person you'd want to tell?
0: Well, now the first person I tell, obviously, is my fiance, Amelia. Like, we were very, very compatible. We've Basically, gone down the same road, had the same roles. Now, currently in similar similar roles ourselves. Now, um, in terms of what we do, um, for different companies, obviously. But um, she's definitely the person I confide in and talk to, and share wins and talk about losses, and try figure out everything with. Mm. Um, but outside of that, I would lean very much so on my oldest brother John. Now, um, he's he's definitely someone that I would seek advice from talk to about like things even even as, as i've gotten older as i've moved into kind of more senior roles and he's he himself is the ceo of a company so he um i lean on him on kind of management decisions like how do you how do you inspire your team how do you how do you make heart, like how do you make decisions you know are going to annoy people are going to fly in the face of what people want to do that, but you know, this is the right decision or you feel this is the right decision for the business. So he's someone I talk to a lot about, um, you know, just life in general, but business as well.
1: Okay. Talk to me then a little bit about your journey then from sales into sales leadership, what that was like, what were the bumps along the road for you personally in terms of where you had to adjust your style or learn new skills.
0: Yeah, this is uh, this is what I'm still learning. Well, this is <laughs> um, this is uh, again this kind of going back to the thing I was talking about, Ross Gray, knowing different personalities. Um, when you're in sales, you you need to know personalities in terms of like you need to know who's on the call on the opposite side of you, like who's making the decisions, who's influencing, who's blocking, the usual kind of. Um, You know, things that would fall into who you're speaking to, a prospect or customer you're speaking to. But from a management style, you have to go so much more in depth in that in terms of one of the big things for me is I'm quite a direct person. I, I, you know, I like to be told things directly. I don't wind people feeling like they've hurt my feelings or something like that. It's, you know, kick skinned, I suppose, in that in that sense. And to try train myself to realize that not everybody likes getting very direct feedback or not everybody likes to mm. to um, receive things the way that I do is uh, something I'm still trying to really work on um, because, you know, everyone, everyone reacts differently to this stuff. And I don't want people to feel like um, I'm being overly aggressive or something like that when it's not intended that way. Like when I'm trying to obviously constructive feedback and i'm trying to assume that positive intent and that i'm i'm hoping that people other people assume my positive intent like Mm -hmm. no i didn't wake up to hurt someone's feelings and i'm assuming that you know you didn't wake up to ruin my day or anything so um it's more just training myself how uh to understand my team better as to how they can how they want to be communicated to that's the biggest thing i think
1: Mm -hmm. okay what lights your fire most about life right now
0: for me um for life in general Yep. uh honestly the, the, well for life in general there's, there's a couple of things i am particularly enjoying learning how to do cross-country skiing um i'm really 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 enjoying that mm. um i i am also quite looking forward to we, we kind of have really on that one i would imagine if you're not doing
1: it from the time of two
0: Oh, listen! It's like yeah. um, the only way I can describe it is: could you imagine putting a Norwegian out into the middle of a hurling match without that's... having never played it before? <laughs> like, yeah. That's the only comparison. It's just yeah. like I, I'm I'm very recognisable on every mountain as someone who does not belong. Mm. Um, but uh, that that's one thing. Just from a personal sense, really enjoying that. Um, the the pandemic, I suppose. Obviously, as I mentioned, I'm, I'm engaged now, so. Mm kind of half started planning the wedding, but we've basically stopped every time we've started because with the pandemic and I don't know how many weddings I've been invited to that have been canceled or postponed or rescheduled or whatever. Uh, So we don't want to go into that world. We're happy to wait as opposed to um, try to organize something in a rush and then then do anything, but quite excited about actually getting into that and like starting to plan that. And then from a business sense, I'm in a really interesting position where we are really starting to focus, basically since I've been hired in Avidly, um, to really try focus on putting a really good sales structure together for the company. Because traditionally our business has been a merger of a number of different uh, agencies and IT companies and um, HubSpot partners, ultimately. Uh, that's, that's what we do. Um, but there has never been, as it is with a lot of marketing agencies, IT consultancies, there's never been like a proper dedicated sales team. There have been people who sell, but they're not sales people. They're not dedicated to it. They're not like this is their job because they have to be billable or something as well. So this is the first time we're really putting that organization together um, to put a really defined structure on that. So that's what I'm working on at the moment. So I'm, re- I'm really, really excited about um, getting that launched and getting it up and running and getting people in place. Um and ultimately starting training and getting them up to speed on how we do things and the way, the way we sell. Um, yeah, that, that, they're probably the things I'm most excited about at the moment.
1: Um, what would you say inspires you a lot in terms of the people you work with? What is it that you see in them, experience that you said that, yeah, that gives you joy, that gives you energy?
0: Yeah, there's there's a couple of things actually now that really stand out to me, uh, particularly in Avidly, because co- coming from HubSpot, it was um, HubSpot was such a well-oiled machine. It was it's 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 so different to the kind of how how they works. Like it was insanely well-oiled. Everybody knew what everybody's job was. There was like it was you know we saw the stock price last year went to the moon and everything. But now. Um, in in avidly, the thing that really really inspires me, the thing I, I I I you know gets me excited as you as you say is like when I'm talking to someone because we offer so many different services now, not just HubSpot. Like there's people who know are experts on like Shopify, experts on like different technologies, creative branding. When I talk to people who know something, who are experts in what they do, that I don't know about, that really. That, that, that's the thing that like gets me out of bed in the morning. I love finding out um, about new things, but I also love seeing like other people being excellent at what they do, either speaking to a client, doing a training, whatever it might be. And, and even in HubSpot, which is something I know very well, there are people in Avidly who know parts of it way better than I do. Um, and it just, it's really, really good for me to see that because it means then there's always something new I can learn. Um, like there's no limit to it.
1: Yeah, it, it sounds to me that that learning is something that's really important to you. Does that go across the board? Uh, as in, it's not just about learning about the job, but about it's a curiosity about any subject matter, or is it? Yeah, curiosity?
0: I yeah, I'd say it's any subject matter generally. But like in the like in a business sense, it's you know there's so much that we can potentially do that i'm just curious about and i would like that to like to the point in terms of like the team and what i do i would like that kind of inquisitive nature to be reflected on my team as well i would like that i want them to go out and try find Mm. new ways of doing things challenging like you know just because i say something's the right way um doesn't mean it necessarily is for that person so i would like them to challenge that and figure out better ways to do it, if that's the case Um, and and find out new ways of doing things like that, that is, I I just think it's so important. Otherwise you'll get bored, um, you'll get lost in the kind of monotony of it. So Um, but generally speaking to your question, um, yeah, I've always kind of thirsted for knowledge across everything. Like I read all the time. I love um, I consume more podcasts, I would say than anyone else I know. On on everything, like on trivia, on history, on sales, on leadership, everything. Uh, There's no no limits. Oh, right. Oh, I can't know how to pick that. Probably favorite podcast at the moment I'm listening to. There's two I'm listening to right now. There's one uh, called um, Real Dictators, and I'm listening to the story of Adolf Hitler and his rise to power, which is just fascinating to be. As, as anyone I think would admit but there's some great the story of Stalin in that was just incredible I thought um, and then there's another one um, that I listened to it's a British scandal um, which talks about some of the biggest scandals in British history oh. and so the one they're talking about now is uh, when the that couple cheated on who wants to be a millionaire so it's just kind of some light-hearted fun yeah. um, but it, but it's good and then I listen to a lot of uh, rugby and sports podcasts as well which, yeah. you know, they're the two
1: I was going to say, because the first two are kind of historical documentary type uh, yeah. podcasts. Uh, there's another one you might love, a uh, revisionist history by Malcolm Gladwell, okay. the guy. If you might be yeah, thinking, yeah, I know. Yeah, his revisionist history is just just brilliant. Every one is a different story from that he he introduces a you know a story that has often been forgotten or ignored, and they're just they're fascinating. You get that insight into them. It's uh, so well. a good recommendation. I will, yeah, uh, no i recommend it to anybody. It's the kind of thing that it's, each one is different. There's one about Elvis. Like, just the most esoteric, almost, topics. Uh, there's, no, there's nothing that's common between them, except he is an utterly brilliant storyteller. Um, but
0: that's actually that's actually the common thread I think with a lot of what I do listen to it's a it's people who are good storytellers like I also listen to like the blind boy podcast a lot yeah. um in, in Ireland and like he's just a phenomenally creative way of speaking and way of describing things and like I I re, like I love listening to him like for that reason because it's he made a comment the other day about exceptionally wet thin misty rain and he was calling it like the uh Quicksand of rain because it, it it's deceptive and you don't think it's going to be that bad and then you're drowned and I was like it's just it's an ing- incredible way of thinking that my brain doesn't immediately go to so um, yeah pe- even people like that I really really resonate with me if you were minister for
1: education and you can make one subject mandatory on the school curriculum what would it be and
0: why that is. Great question. It's always worth the wait. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Uh, What would I make mandatory? Um, Honestly, um, it's a weird one. Uh, But personally for me, I think one of the things that stood out to me most in my education in Ross Grey was we were made do public speaking. Um, So from first, second, third year, it was mandatory you had to do it so basically what happened was outside of our study hall a list would be put up um with the list of names and there'd be topics that you had to speak about and you could select the topic you had to speak about and then you had to make a three minute speech for or against that topic like whatever the statement might be and it could have been anything it could have been like abortion it could have been uh before gay marriage referendum that was one of the topics It could have Mm. been about asylum seekers like they were serious topics um but it was something that to this day obviously stands to me um public speaking getting up in front of a crowd of your peers at the age of 12 and making uh, a speech about you know whatever uh michael kenny you're not the best hurling team in the country or whatever (laughs) But, uh, but like you could you have started. argued
1: for that. <laughs> Back then, you can now, no question. But, but uh, uh, 2015, uh, yeah, yeah.
0: 2015, yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, that, and so, all the rest of them in their pants.
1: Were, were, <laughs> were you told which side of the argument you had to argue for or against, or was it just left up to you whether you wanted
0: to be for or against? It was left up to us, um, no. so we could decide. Um, and this obviously led to, in, in the older years, going into debating, where you might debate against other schools. Now, that wasn't mandatory. It was optional for people. And then, obviously, a different language debating. But if I could make one thing mandatory, it would be public speaking. I think oh, it's absolutely a really I, I, important I, I've seen skill. I not that anywhere where they, where they did that.
1: And I, I, I couldn't agree more. I think it's, it's the one skill that if you have it you get credit that's way out of proportion to the skill. Yeah, the yeah exactly. Yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah. That's it that's exactly it. and you use it all the time. Yeah. And like all the time. So I just it's one thing that I I can guarantee anybody who makes an effort at it that gets anyway decent, mm. it will stand to them in every aspect of their life. Mm. Like work life Sports, yeah. if you're a captain of a team, get up and make a speech. If you play golf and you win a competition, make a speech. Thanking people at a dinner or a function. Like you use it all the time. Um,
1: sure.
0: Speaking at a wedding, yeah. for example. That's yeah. a common one. People dread it. I've spoken at three weddings. Fine. I, I enjoy <laughs> it. <laughs> Sports, hopefully. Yeah, yeah hopefully.
1: <laughs> Don't, I, I screwed up completely my wedding speech. I completely screwed up, as in, I, um, I well, I, there was two problems with it. One was the, and the mine was back in ninety one, and uh, I tried to make a joke because Tiberi had beaten Kilkenny in that All Ireland, and I tried to make a joke about that, not realising that probably ninety percent of the people in the room didn't get the joke, which uh, is yes. which is you know technically a stupid thing to do when yeah, you're yeah. doing it. And and to this day, I've been reminded of it more than once. I forgot to mention how lovely the bride was looking.
0: oh yeah yeah that's a that's a classic one. Rookie. that's what I said before. If you forget you forget the basics um, if you don't think about them it's the it's the simplest ones you always forget. And the
1: thing was, I think in both senses was that the thing I'd failed to do was rehearses. I yeah. arguably assumed because I had a kind of in my head what I was going to talk about that as soon as I got up to stand. And speak that it would come to me
0: mm. yeah it never That's, never works like that never practice. Never practice <laughs> <done. laughs> and i'm curious when you did that in
1: school did they give you feedback or was it just they let the process be the teacher
0: oh no it was it was a competitive thing like it was there were winners and losers in this and there were uh like there was judges um, yeah. so you had to it was normally three judges um, and then for the finals like for the the kind of end of the year there was mm-hmm. five judges normally um mm-hmm. and you would get feedback on how you spoke like your your diction your enunciation the points you made um like were they valid did they, was the audience engaged with what you were saying like there was lots of different points to it so it was yeah it was it was really really good like you got things you could work on um within that and it was something that none of my friends very few of my friends did it, uh, ever practiced like public speaking. Um, I think it's the one thing that was a big differentiator for me. Yeah. Tell me, uh,
1: I'm just conscious of time, Damien, and I wanted to ask you a couple of questions um, to, to finish up. One is, your house is burning down, and love. if you have any pets and loved ones, they're all safe, right? Your fiancé is safe. yeah. yeah. And uh, you have time to run back in and save one object. And it can't be your phone, right? But that, can be that. What would it be and why? If
0: I could save one object other than my phone or my fiance, uh, <laughs> I would. What would I probably take? Jesus, honestly, in my house, there's probably, probably my watch is the only other thing that would mean enough to me to take, to, to really take most other things I could replace. Mm. Um, but like my, I got I, and the reason why this watch is because when I moved to Norway, I got engaged, bought an apartment, um, like bought, bought my first home. Mm. Like a lot of things happened and I wanted to get something to just commemorate like a, a fairly significant change in my life that had, you know, was going very well and I'm very very happy. So that it it, mean, it means it meant a lot to me to do it. It was the first ever significant kind of purchase I had ever made. Um, so it's probably that. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't be even even if I got a new one, it wouldn't be the same.
1: And was that, if I could ask, a watch that you always wanted, and this was the opportunity to get it, or did you go out kind of not having any idea, and you just wanted something?
0: it 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 was yeah i i would say it was closer to the the former in terms of like it it was a watch that i've always really really liked um Obviously, there are other watches that would be great, but you know the budgets need to be considered. <laughs> I have a wedding coming up, so uh, you know I'm uh, not going to be going. So going you don't buy it if... now before you're married; it ain't ever happening. Yeah, ones. yeah. Well, listen, I, I I am considerate of that too. They, things only get more expensive from here if you uh, yes. start looking at families and schools and all the rest of it. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, that it was definitely it was that, that's probably the one thing I, I would look at. Everything else can pretty much be replaced. I would say,
1: yeah nice um if when your time on this planet is done and there's a book written about your life what would you like the title
0: to be why this is a tough question paul um was a title about me uh i don't know i don't know what the title would be but i would say something along the lines of you know um like so, so, something along the lines of like le- left left an impression, like more respected by respected and liked by people. Like you know, it, it'd be something along those kind of lines. Like I, I would always like to think that I'm very respectful of people that I meet, and I'm quite considerate of what you know what's important to them. And I, I I've always like I've always been like that. So I need to come back to you on a title, but something along those lines was uh, would be you know left left at a better place than than it started albeit where the world does seem to be going to hell in a handbasket with uh, climate change and every every other political problem that's happening but uh yeah, yeah something yeah. along those lines For my own for my own little bit left it better than it started and if there's a sequel it would be he could ski yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Oh, well, ideally, it was awfully won the All Ireland, all thanks to <laughs> them. Uh, well, now that you have yeah. a good guinea man looking after you,
1: yeah. <laughs> you never their, know.
0: You never dreams. know. Other so things
1: have happened. But um, uh, probably not this year for either of us, I think. I don't think so, no, no, no. unfortunately. No. no, but this Sunday, Tipperary going to uh, um, Semple.
0: On should yeah. be game televised. Yeah. All that's right. the other thing. It's very hard to get that. Um, that's something I miss. I've uh, been able to get terrestrial television, like Irish, like GEA, getting the rugby, getting <laughs> getting getting all those sports because they basically just have skiing on here twenty four seven and yeah. nothing else.
1: Have you subscribed to GEA Go?
0: I haven't, but I, I'll, I'll need to get a VPN and basically. Oh no, quite, quite the opposite. I th- oh, well, sorry.
1: I can't say it for Norway, but I do know from it that a lot of the games that are on GA Go, I can't access them from here. I have to go through a VPN to access them because they're only shown outside of Ireland because they usually have the rights sold to either Sky or RTE in Ireland. Ah, uh, interesting. My brother had, you know, he lives in the States and he has a subscription there. Um, I'll
0: look into that. That's good yeah, look into that.
1: I, I, I would just make the assumption that it's outside of Ireland rather than being yeah, yeah. only. Uh, that wouldn't make sense. But uh, that's, yeah. In fact, any games I've bought on them, not all of them, but many that I've had to do it, I've had to go through a VPN to get them from Ireland.
0: Gotcha. Okay, interesting.
1: So, and oh, the quality is a...
0: excellent.
1: The, the screen quality was superb.
0: Great. Okay.
1: Right, good stuff. Listen. Damien, thank you so much for being my guest
0: on the podcast today. I thoroughly enjoyed it. My pleasure, Paul. Great to talk. Uh, anytime.